Good morning, dear friends. Today is December 27 in the year 2012. We are in the Assembly of Stars Meditation Hall in Plum Village during our winter retreat 2012-2013. We have a few days left to prepare ourselves to welcome the new year. We look at our practice. We know that each person needs a spiritual dimension in their daily life. That spiritual dimension is necessary. It can help us to face the difficulties of daily life. Every person needs a practice. We have a body called the physical body, but we also have a spiritual body. That is our practice. That is called the dharmakaya, the dharma body. If our dharmakaya is robust, then we can very well confront the difficulties that arise in daily life. In Buddhism, we speak of the Dharma body. Faptan. And the Buddha had a, bu- a Dharma body. The Buddha's Dharma body continues to exist to this day, always. And if we practice well, we can help the Buddha's Dharma body to continue on. So the Buddha needs us in order to continue. His physical body is no longer there, but his Dharma body is still here. And with our own practice, we can help that body to continue. We can transmit, pass on that body to our children and our grandchildren. We may call the Dharma body the way, the path, the path. Marka, the path leading to the cessation of suffering, the path leading to the transformation and healing, the path leading to happiness, to peace. So everyone should have this Dharma body in him, in her, and every person has the path in himself or herself that allows that person to continue. And we know that marga, the path, the way, is the fourth truth taught by the Buddha. The path. 
the path leading to the cessation of suffering, to the transformation of suffering, to well-being. And that is the third truth, the cessation. The cessation of ill-being, of suffering, of despair. It's a negative term, but it's actually speaking of positive things. In cessation, we see happiness, joy, nirvana. Nirvana is peace, absolute peace. So the path leading to the cessation of suffering, to the presence of well-being. So we have two truths. The second of the four truths is also a kind of path, but one that leads elsewhere instead of leading us to well-being, to the cessation of suffering, this path leads us to suffering. We call this path the... We call the path in the fourth truth a noble path. This path in the second truth is another kind of path, not so noble more like ignoble. It's like the ignoble path. (coughs) (coughs) Leading to what? Leading to suffering, ill-being. And that's the first truth. So there are two paths up to us to choose. There's a path that leads to the cessation of suffering, to well-being, and the other that leads to suffering, to ill-being. And in Plum Village, we seek to look at the four truths in the light of interbeing. There are four things here. But when we look deeply into each one of them, we see the other three. And that's the way that we should study and practice Buddhism in the spirit of interbeing. When you look deeply into the first truth, you look at suffering, ill-being, In the beginning, you think that ill-being should be banished. You don't want any more. You want to banish the suffering. But if we look deeply, we will discover that suffering, ill-being is necessary to produce well-being. That's interbeing. For example, let's look at the lotus flower. If you come to Plum Village in the month of June, July, you will see many lotus flowers. 
And we know very well that we cannot plant lotus flowers on marble. Lotus flowers only grow from mud. So the mud is necessary for the production of the lotus. And it is exactly the same thing with ill-being. It is with the mud of suffering, of ill-being, that we can produce the lotus of happiness. That's interbeing. Without the mud, no lotus. So ill-being, suffering, plays a very important role in the production of well-being. So there's a very close relationship between the first truth and the third truth. You cannot take the first truth out of the third. That's what we learn from our practice. Two things that appear to be opposing each other inter are, for example, the left and the right. You think you think the left is the opposite, the enemy of the right. But without the right, the left cannot manifest. Let's try to take the left away. The right disappears immediately. So left and right rely on each other to manifest. We can never take the left out of the right or the right out of the left. And it's the same with ill-being and well-being. That is the teaching of the Buddha on interbeing. We need suffering. This is something easy enough to understand. We already know that all of us have suffering in us, but we haven't really learned the way to take care of our suffering. We have suffering We don't know how to handle it. So the practice should serve as a tool, an instrument. With that practice, we will be able to handle the suffering in us and help the other person to handle their suffering. Most of us are afraid of our suffering. We always want 
to ignore it. Whereas with the Dharma, we learn to come back to ourselves in order to be able to recognize the suffering in us and to try to embrace it with tenderness, with one in-breath, we bring our mind back to our body. We get in touch with our body, with our feelings, with our emotions. We say, my dear suffering, I know you're there. I'm going to take good care of you. So recognizing suffering, just as it is, and embracing it with a lot of tenderness, that is the practice. If you continue with mindful breathing, with compassion, with concentration, and you look deeply into the nature of your ill-being, of your suffering, very soon you will know the nature, the source of your suffering. And one, a deep knowledge or understanding of the source of suffering will liberate you. So that knowing, that is the path knowing what is the path, the roots that led to that ill-being. The way of living that has brought about the ill-being. So in looking into the truth of ill-being with concentration, we will discover the nature, the source, the roots of the ill-being. So the second truth is very useful to our practice. When we look into the first, we see the second, and when we see the second, transformation begins, healing begins. The Buddha said this, what has come to be It means suffering. What has come to be in you if you look into it with concentration and you can recognize the sources, the roots of that ill-being? You are already on the path of emancipation, the path of liberation, of transformation. So we need to look into our ill-being in order to recognize the sources of the ill-being. And the Buddha advised us to look into the second truth in terms of food. The French writer André Gide wrote about food. What kind of food have we used to feed our suffering, our ill-being. 
For example, a depression is one kind of ill-being. And that depression needs food to continue to survive. The Buddha said, nothing can survive without food. So ill-being also needs food. And if you look and you can identify the sources of food of that ill-being, you have seen the second truth, the second noble truth. (coughs) So when we can cut off that source of food, we can do it right away that ill-being, that depression begins to die. The moment that you begin to cease feeding that depression, you are already on the path of healing. So when we look into ill-being, we see the second truth, which is the source of food that has brought about the ill-being. And the fourth truth also, the noble path, may also be seen as a source of food. It means the good food, the food that helps us to transform and to heal ourselves, that's the noble path. And it is that food that will help us to produce happiness, healing. It's the cessation of ill-being. The cessation of ill-being is the beginning of well-being. The presence of well-being The cessation of one thing means the beginning or the presence of something else. The cessation or the absence of darkness is the presence of light. So the cessation of ill-being means the beginning of the presence of well-being. So, When we look into any one of the four truths, we can see the other three truths at the same time. If you have not seen deeply into ill-being, then you have not seen the path leading to ill-being, the cessation of ill-being, or the path leading to well-being. You think you don't need ill-being, you need something else, like the, the noble path. But you're wrong. You need to really understand ill-being to be able to understand happiness, to be able to understand the path that leads to well-being. So when we study and practice the four 
Noble Truth in the Light of Interbeing, we can see that the four truths enter our. When we look into one of the four truths, we see the three others. Now we can look a little more closely into the relationship between the noble path and the cessation of suffering. glance we see there is a path and a destination. The path leading to the destination. Two things, path and destination. But in the light of interbeing, this distinction is false. It's just like the left and the right. If you remove the left, there is no more right. If you remove the path, there is no destination. The path is the destination itself. because you are on a path that you can experience the destination in each step. In Plum Village, we always say there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. So what we seek, what is it? Enlightenment. Of course, we seek enlightenment, awakening, reconciliation. At the end of the year, we meditate on on that destination of, or that goal of reconciliation. A path leading to awakening, a path leading to reconciliation. A path leading to love. a path leading to peace. (coughs) Let's look first of all at the path leading to awakening. 
and we will see very quickly that the path is the awakening itself. Awakening, enlightenment is bodhi. Enlightenment. You practice as a Buddhist to be able to realize awakening, enlightenment, right? How? How do you do it to get there? And how much time does it take to, to arrive? The answer is clear. Enlightenment is the way. Enlightenment is the destination. Every time you walk, that you take a step in walking meditation, every step should contain enlightenment. You walk as an awakened being. If you're really there, established in the present moment, with your mind and body together, you can make steps like that. Every step carries within it mindfulness, concentration, and enlightenment. If not, we're just walking around like sleepwalkers. We're not even really there. You're walking, but your mind is listening to a kind of radio NST, non-stop thinking, always running that radio station. You're listening, so you're not really where you are. You're being pulled either into the past or the future or into your projects and you're not really there to enjoy, to experience every step you take. So there's no enlightenment in that walking. There's no awakening in it. We practice walking meditation to get enlightenment but we should walk in such a way that enlightenment is possible in every step. If there is mindfulness and concentration, insight, then every step is enlightenment. You walk as a Buddha, as an awakened being. You're not going through a dream. You're really living your life deeply. You can live every moment of your daily life deeply as a Buddha, as a Bodhisattva, meaning the step you're taking is not to arrive at a destination of enlightenment. It is enlightenment. Every step is enlightenment. Every step should be joy, peace, awakening. So we cannot remove joy, awakening, peace from any one of your steps. You need the energy of mindfulness. 
We need the energy of concentration. We need insight, enough insight to enjoy every step we take. So you walk as a Buddha. You don't have to wait. You are a Buddha right now. You are inhabited by concentration, by insight, by mindfulness, and you are a living Buddha when you walk. It's a training. I walk with freedom. I walk with joy, the joy to be alive. I walk with peace. And there's joy and peace, freedom in every step that you take. You are living enlightenment in every moment. When you wash the dishes, you should wash your dishes in a way that makes enlightenment possible in every moment. You can enjoy the warm water, the soap, and the time you have to wash those dishes. That time you're spending in nirvana, in the kingdom of God, we should learn to do our dishes in such a way that every moment is a moment of joy, of peace, and there is no other moment. That's the way. The way is happiness. The way is well-being. We should not distinguish between the means and the end. The end is the means itself. So your way of arranging your room, your way of brushing your teeth, these things will show whether there's enlightenment or not, whether there is peace, whether there's joy or not. These things can be seen in your way of brushing your teeth. And that is a training. We always want to generate the energy of mindfulness, of concentration, of insight, to be able to live peace, happiness, love in every moment. We should do it starting now. Every step, every breath is enlightenment. There is no way to enlightenment. Enlightenment is the way. And that's interbeing, the teaching of interbeing. Last week we talked about I have arrived, I am home. I have arrived. But is there a path leading to our home? 
Is there a way home? No. There is no way home. Home is the way. So that's why we wrote There is no way home. Home is the way. So when you walk, you arrive at your true home in every step. I have arrived. I am home. In every step, I am home. So there is no path that's separate from the destination itself. To arrive at your home, you don't need to buy a plane ticket. Every breath, every step, brings you right there. We feel well. We feel comfortable in the here and the now. That is the real true home. The true home. If you seek peace, seek it in the present moment. With every breath, with every step, Let us speak of reconciliation. There is no path to reconciliation. Reconciliation is the path. Are you on good terms with yourself? To be able to be on good terms with another person, you need to be on good terms with yourself. That's the rule. Have you accepted yourself? Are you angry with yourself? Do you have complexes with yourself? So we have to make peace with ourselves. We have to reconcile with ourselves. But who, where is yourself? That's a great question. You want to make peace with yourself, but do you know who you are? So we need to breathe in with mindfulness. Come back to our body. The first thing we get in touch with is our breath. I am aware of my in-breath, my 
brings me back to my body. I know I have a body. You get in touch with your body, with your mindfulness. And when you feel that your mind is one with your body, then you begin to know who you are. This body, who does it belong to? This body belongs not to any self, but to a whole lineage. There are generations in each of us. We are only the continuation of that lineage. All the generations of the past are still alive in every cell of our body. So every time I raise my arms up like this, all my ancestors are doing the same thing at the same time. This insight can come very easily, very quickly. It's not just me doing this. It's all my ancestors and all my children and grandchildren doing it with me at the same time. This insight can come very quickly. There is no separate self. There are weaknesses. There are talents. All those things in us, and we can accept all of them. We accept ourselves, and we accept our ancestors with all their qualities and their shortcomings. And when you are able to accept reconciliation becomes possible when you've been able to accept yourself you can accept the other person but we always you always have to start with yourself how do we reconcile every breath should embody, should carry in it. The desire, the will to reconcile. We don't have to go to the other person to begin our reconciliation. Every thought that you produce should be a reconciliation. The way you think, every thought you produce should be reconciliation with yourself and afterwards with him or with her. Every 
breath you take should be a reconciliation. You breathe in such a way that peace and reconciliation with yourself are possible. We reconcile like that, walking, breathing, eating, washing our dishes. Every moment, every movement is a moment of reconciliation. Every action, every gesture is a gesture of reconciliation. We have a few days to prepare ourselves, to reconcile with ourselves before starting a new year. So, we have a little time. We're lucky. We have a body and a mind to be able to do this. Every moment of our daily life should be an act of reconciliation with ourself. We accept the happiness and the suffering. We accept our strengths and our weaknesses. And that way we accept all our ancestors, all our children and our grandchildren. And we have peace. So before writing a letter or phoning, we need to practice with ourselves. And if you are reconciled with yourself, it will be much easier to reconcile with the other person. You already have reconciliation, and you are reconciliation, so the letter you write will be reconciliation. And love. Love can heal. Love can nourish. Do you have enough love for yourself? If you cannot love yourself, how can you love the other person? We have to learn to accept our body, our mind, to love our body, our mind. We want to be very kind. We should practice non-violence towards our body and our mind. We want to eat and drink in such a way that love towards our body and mind is expressed. We want to walk to work in such a way that love toward our body and mind is possible. This is doable with mindfulness. It is you who have the power to do all these things. You have to learn how to love, love yourself, your body. To love and accept your feelings, your emotions, 
we have to know how to take care of ourselves. We have to know how to handle a painful feeling. We have to know how to handle a strong emotion. That's already love. And if you can do that for yourself, it will be very easy to help another person. That is reconciliation. There is no way, no technique leading to reconciliation. Every moment of your daily life is reconciliation. Reconciliation has to be in every moment of your daily life. We want peace. Is there a way to peace? In Plum Village we always say, There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Peace is the way. So we have to live in such a way that peace is possible in every moment of our daily life. We make peace with our body. We make peace with our feelings, our perceptions. And in that way, we can make peace with nature, with other species. This is possible. When there is peace in oneself, there is well-being. And you know that in Buddhism we speak of nirvana as peace. Nirvana, this is Nirvana, the second part is peace. Santam is peace. Nirvana. to have peace in the Buddha's teaching nirvana is something possible here and now right away. The Buddha speaks of the visible nirvana. Nirvana in the present moment. 
We don't need to die to enter nirvana. As we may have thought. And the Buddha offered a definition, a simple enough definition of nirvana. What is nirvana? He said nirvana is the absence of afflictions. Afflictions like anger, despair, jealousy, these kinds of things. These afflictions are considered a kind of fire that burns. And it causes suffering. The flames are burning. We're not at peace. So nirvana is the extinction of afflictions. Such as hatred and anger, etc. So the absence of anger is nirvana. The absence of hatred is nirvana. The absence of despair is nirvana. And each one of us can experience the absence of hatred, the absence of anger, at least sometimes. Uh, let's suppose we are walking, we walk on a step on a thorn, and that thorn won't come out. We feel the pain, we're not at all comfortable. That thorn is still there in our foot. When we have anger or hatred, anxiety in us, we feel the same. We don't feel at ease. We want to extract that thorn. We want to remove our anger. We want to take out that anger, take it out of our system. When the thorn is removed, we feel well-being. That's freedom. Freedom relative to suffering. Freedom from anger. Freedom from these thorns. That's nirvana. Nirvana is the extinction. The going out of afflictions the extinction of those fires, those flames. 
but nirvana does not last very long if we don't know how to transform deeply the roots of those afflictions. There's a seed of anger that resides in the depths of our consciousness. If that seed agrees to lie sleeping quietly, we can have some nirvana here and now. But if someone comes along and waters that seed of anger, it will come up and make a fire. So, those of us who practice well can transform the seeds of hatred, anger in us. So that's the complete nirvana. To be able to do that, we can make use of meditation to be able to bring about that insight with a deep understanding of things we can uproot, eradicate the anger in us, the despair in us and that is the nirvana We don't have to die to experience nirvana. Nirvana is peace, is freedom. Freedom from afflictions like hatred, anger, etc. Freshness, coolness. Just like when the flames have gone down, have gone out. When you are able to extinguish flames, you have coolness. That coolness is nirvana. That coolness is peace, sankam. True peace. And this is not an abstract notion. You can always experience that peace, this coolness in yourself. Our practice should help us to transform that anger, transform that jealousy into peace, into love. There are also other obstacles, impediments that prevent nirvana from manifesting. These are wrong perceptions, 
wrong perceptions. With meditation, we can very well remove. We can burn up those wrong perceptions. Our ideas of being and non-being, birth and death, these kinds of ideas are the foundation of our anxiety and our fear. So it is possible to remove all of that. For example, when you look at a cloud and you look deeply into the nature of the cloud, you can recognize the fact that the cloud is free of birth and death. It is impossible for a cloud to die. A cloud may become rain or snow or hail, but it can never become nothing. A cloud also didn't come from nothing. A cloud has to come from something like water in the ocean, heat from the sun, these kinds of things. So the nature of a cloud is the nature of no birth and no death. When we look in this way, we can transcend the notions of birth and death, being and non-being. Nirvana is freedom from these kinds of notions. These notions are the foundation of all kinds of fear and discrimination. So nirvana is possible. If we know how to extinguish the fires of anger, despair, jealousy, etc., and also remove wrong perceptions that we have about the world. And the way prescribed by the Buddha is the way of knowing. It is not the way of grace, but the way of wisdom. When we look at things Buddha recommended three things. The 
this is the essence of meditation, the practice of wisdom. Liberation, salvation by wisdom. First, all formations are impermanent. All formations are impermanent. Formations means all things, all phenomena. All formations are impermanent. Anitya sarva samskara. And you may agree with that. Things are impermanent, always changing. But the practice is not to acquire a notion, not even the notion of impermanence. The notion of impermanence cannot help you to liberate yourself. We have to practice the concentration on impermanence to be able to realize the insight of impermanence. So in our daily life, we need to look into ourself. We need to look into all the things around with that mindfulness that everything is impermanent. We are impermanent, and the person we love, that we hate, they are also impermanent. That is a door, a wide door that opens to absolute truth. But impermanence is not just a notion. The notion of impermanence cannot help us. In principle, you understand that the other person is impermanent, but you live, you continue to conduct yourself as if that person is permanent. They're going to be there for thousands of years. And if you know that she's really impermanent, you will behave differently and you will do everything you can do now to help that person not to suffer anymore. You need to have that insight, that concentration on impermanence, and not just the idea of impermanence. This is a meditation Look at yourself, look at what's around you, and touch the nature of impermanence. Secondly, All things are without self. There is no self. Niratmana sarvadharma. When you look, you see that everything is impermanent. In 
person, there is a body that changes all the time. The physical body is always changing. The cells of your body die and are born in every moment. And you may compare your body now with the body you had when you were a little child. There's a big difference. Are you still that child? Or are you a different person? You're so different from that child, right? So, is that child still alive or has that child died? Are you the same as that person or another person? These things can be revealed through deep looking. And not only the body is impermanent, but also the feelings, the perceptions, the mental formations, like anger, like love, and consciousness. Consciousness is something that's changing all the time and very quickly, very, very quickly. Consciousness is of a cinematographic nature, very quick, even faster than the cells of your body. So everything is impermanent and you cannot find any entity that remains the same in two consecutive moments. So if you believe in an immortal soul, a self, a soul, an identity that remains the same, then you are believing in permanence. But in reality, there is nothing that is like that, that can continue without changing. So if you accept impermanence, you also accept non-self. Because the self that you're believing in has to be something that doesn't change, that's not impermanent. In Buddhism, we speak of transmigration, of rebirths, karma and retribution, but we also speak of non-self. And some scholars of Europe who studied Buddhism asked this question, how is it possible to have the transmigration without an immortal soul? If there is no immortal soul, then who is it that passes from one body to the next? If there is no eternal soul, the one who sows the the action, the seeds of action, and the one who he eats the fruits, who reaps the harvest of those actions. How can retribution be possible? There has to be an eternal soul for these things to be possible. 
for the transmigration from body to body to occur, for reincarnation, for karma and retribution to be possible. But in fact, in the Buddha's teaching, there is samsara, rebirth, karma. There's retribution, but there is no self. That is possible. If you believe there is a permanent self that lasts life after life, you have not really understood the teaching of the Buddha. Look at your cloud. Your cloud is playing around the circle of samsara. The cloud will be rain, will be snow, then it will be river, then water vapor, and then another cloud. Is it necessary to have an eternal soul for the transmigration of samsara to be possible? No. So, look deeply to see that all formations are impermanent and to see that there is no identity that remains the same through time and space. This right, deep insight into reality This insight allows you to experience that peace that is nirvana, that deep peace that is nirvana. So these three things mentioned here are called the three dharma seals. A teaching that does not carry those three seals is not a teaching of the Buddha. It's not an authentic Buddhist teaching. There is impermanence, there is non-self, and there is also the peace of nirvana. So today we have learned that nirvana is possible with the extinction of afflictions like fear, like anger and hatred. 
and nirvana is possible with insight acquired through looking deeply into the nature of things. Things are impermanent and things do not have a separate self and that way we can remove all kinds of false notions like birth and death, being and non-being. And we can experience nirvana on earth the nirvana with residue, with uh, remainder. Each one of us can experience nirvana. Even if there are still traces of afflictions in us that are still there, in the form of seeds. There is a seed of anger sleeping in our consciousness. There's a seed of jealousy. And it may happen that one day we will see them manifest and we will lose our nirvana. So we enjoy the peace we have now, but we have not yet transform the latent tendencies sleeping in the depths of our consciousness, our store consciousness. Upadi substance of samsara, the roots of the afflictions, we may have nirvana now even if we still have a bit of upadi in us. We call this Nirvana with residue. Sa Sa Upadishesha Nirvana. And in principle, practitioners can experience nirvana every time the afflictions are not manifesting, every time wrong perceptions are not there. That's freedom, that's joy, that's well-being. But we have to be aware that there are 
still the residues of the afflictions of wrong perceptions still there in the depths of our consciousness and they could awaken at any moment. The shisha is the residue, the the residue upadi. Holy beings like the Buddha, Arahats, Bodhisattvas, have already totally transformed their afflictions. They can experience nirvana without residue. Nirupadishesha nirvana. So nirvana is available today. As monastics, as lay practitioners, we can always get in touch with nirvana. Nirvana is not something detached from samsara. The wheel of samsara is turning in the world of afflictions. And nirvana is freedom from samsara. But it's seen in the light of interbeing. We cannot seek nirvana outside of samsara. The world of high and low, the world of afflictions, in that very world, there is nirvana. In the mud, there is the lotus. So we shouldn't try to destroy samsara in order to get nirvana. So we have to look deeply into samsara. How? By looking into formations, into phenomena. As the Buddha recommended, and then you will see that nirvana is in samsara. So to think that nirvana is something separate from the samsara and we should run away, escape from samsara to go into nirvana, that that is a false idea. So samsara and nirvana inter-are with confusion, with the afflictions, you are in samsara, but... If you have 
been able to transform your afflictions and your wrong perceptions, then you're in nirvana. There is a master called Feng Feng in the second century in Vietnam. Master Van Pham. He encouraged his disciples to practice in order to attain the world beyond birth and death, to be able to realize nirvana, the realm of no birth and no death. It means the cessation of samsara. And one of his disciples was called. Tianhui. He said, Master, where can we seek nirvana? Where can we seek the realm of no birth and no death? And Van Fang said, Seek nirvana, the world of no birth and no death, in samsara itself. It's very clear. So there is no discrimination between nirvana and samsara. If you are the victim of your afflictions, and your wrong perceptions, then that is samsara. But if you are free of those afflictions, of those wrong perceptions, then you are in nirvana. And you don't have to travel anywhere. You're in nirvana. in the realm, the kingdom of God. Don't look anymore. <laughs>